Well, we have had an encouraging morning, have we not so far? We have sang, as country folks say, and we had a choir to help us, which I always love those Sundays. Uh, we have read the scriptures, we have prayed, and Rob has confessed his sin of lusting after food. So, <laughs> man, we, uh, we're... we're, we're we're on it this morning. I'm glad you're with us. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 11 as we really continue to worship through the word this morning. Acts chapter 11. What many of you don't know is that years ago, before Monty and I met 20 years ago, maybe 35 years ago, we were together at a speaker six-week summer project learning how to be communicators of the gospel to non-Christians. And I got leading that. Now, Monty was a gymnast and a senior at Oklahoma. I was a very mature football player, but had graduated three or four years ahead of that. So you can imagine. We're running around with different folks, right? But we were there, and we remembered each other. And what we remember was the guy who ran that, this phenomenal guy by the name of Tim Downs, incredible communicator, so funny, and one of the most creative people that I've ever seen. He highly recommended a book called A Whack Upside the Head, How You Can Be More Creative, which is the title of our message. And his premise was that most folks get into mental ruts and often need, as he puts it, a whack upside the head to jar us into a new and better ways of thinking. And I say amen to that. Because there is no doubt that as Christ followers, if we have any sense of awareness that when we come to Christ, we bring a whole bunch of bad thinking in, do we not? One of my mentors, Dr. Gary Sweeten, for years called it stinking thinking. Put another way, we have lots of baggage that we bring into this journey with Christ about God, about his church, and about people in general. So what God does, because he's got to fulfill his promise to each believer, and that promise is in Philippians. Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So there is no doubt that what God does is take a, a figurative two by four and gently wax, ups, wax us upside the head to change our way of thinking. And to do that, it's because of how he wired us, that how we think has a direct impact on how we behave. I remember, maybe been a Christian six months, and I saw no problem whatsoever about abortion. And then a gal in Campus Crusade, a friend of mine, told me to read Psalm 139 and see how I felt. And I read it, <laughs> and I cried in my dorm room. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I was a whack upside my head. And since then, God has given me thousands of whacks. <laughs> my wife has had far more. She needed far more. Now, here's the deal. 
We saw in Acts 10 how the Lord whacked Peter in preparation for his going to the house of the Gentiles Centurion. Remember that? Cornelius. Because at that time, no Jew would ever think about going to the home of a Gentile, much less eating with Gentiles, for fear of contracting a very profound disease in their community called ceremonial defilement disease. Right? That's what they were afraid of. So the tension in Acts 10, and in our text today, Acts 11, 1 through 26, is that God has promised, and the Jews know this, in Genesis 12, to reach Gentiles, no doubt. And then he has also clearly commanded the apostles and believers to go all over the world to preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere. But this is where I would say the centuries-old stinking thinking of the Jews come into play in our narrative this morning. They thought this meant, for some reason, they thought this meant, preach to the Jews, we'll see it in our text, only who are scattered all over the world. But again, because the thought of a Gentile being saved, coming to salvation without first becoming a Jew, which they called a proselyte, was unthinkable. It is why how we think about God is so crucial. I put a quote on your outline, A.W. Tozer. It's a classic, but it's worth coming back to in light of our text this morning. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. And so this morning, we're going to see where stinking thinking needs to be destroyed. We're going to see where the Jews and Peter got whacked upside the head. And then we're going to get a chance to take a look at where you and I might, not, might need to get whacked upside the head. So just do this for me this morning. Ready? On three, we're going to go boom. Just, to, just so you remember. Ready? One, two, three. Boom. That's going to happen this morning. Let me read our text to us, starting with 1 through 18. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to be you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began to explain to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by the four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts and prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent 
which were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go to them, making no distinction. Now these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Job and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As they began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, meaning Jews, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Now, when the, they heard these, those who, the circumcised folks criticizing, they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life, that leads to life. So, what we have in that 18-verse narrative, if you would, and I put it in your notes, showdown in Jerusalem. From protests to praise. Now remember in Acts 10, we saw Peter proclaim the gospel. Monty preached this to Cornelius and his household. And his entire household came to Christ. They were all Gentiles. And the reality is what Luke is saying here is that the news of that traveled faster than it could through the viral internet. Like it screamed back to Christian headquarters in Jerusalem. Look at what verse one says. It tells us they heard about it. Heard about this. Not only the apostles heard about it, but also really all the Christians in Judea. And that news was this. The Gentiles have received the word of God. This is radical. But the radicalness of this is not because Gentiles have come to faith. The Old Testament has numerous folks of Old Testament of Gentile heritage that came to faith. Obviously, we got Rahab, we got Ruth, and others. But there's something different happening here that we're going to see later in our text. But make no doubt, the breaking news front page headlines on the Jerusalem Times was this. Apostle eats with Gentile. Dot, 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 in his home. And people were losing their minds. Verse two and three tells us that. The circumcision party says criticize him. It means they took issue with Peter. They pushed back on him. Before he could even open his mouth, we notice they've already formed their warped opinions. This circumcision party, there were Jews who believed that the only way to become a Christian was to become a Jew first. And this line of stinking thinking we're going to see is going to raise its head again in a huge way in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. If I put it bluntly, or one writer put it bluntly when he said, they believed that you had to get into Christianity by going first through the vestibule of Judaism. Now, we under, need to understand this word criticize. It's not just yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it means contended with, 
argue with, disputed with. And that's what Peter got. As he arrived back home, they were on him. Bro, what in the world are you thinking? You have lost your cotton-picking Jewish mind. I don't know about you, but when I read it, it's sad, but if I'm really honest, isn't it good to be honest in church, especially? It's good to be honest anytime. I'm sad, but it really is encouraging a little bit for you and I who need multiple wax on the head. I know I do. I walked into my journey with Christ with a truckload of baggage. Here's what we'll see in Galatians 2. You can read it this afternoon. Peter, once again, at some point, refused to eat with the Gentiles, and the apostle Paul had to confront him and contend with him in his face. And here's what I know about stinking thinking, not only from the life of Peter, not only from my life, but also from your life. Is <laughs> stinking thinking dies a long, slow and painful death. And somebody say amen to that, right? Here's the bottom line. Culture, tradition, family, customs, ideologies of any kind that contradict Christ are hard to kill. But I'll tell you this, Christ is to always to be supreme. If any of these, those things I named, contradict or are different from his truth. We're heading there in the text. Verse 3 reminds us that eating a meal in the Jewish community was more than just eating a meal. It was certainly intimate fellowship. And so Peter, in some ways, had been accused of one of the greatest taboos in the Jewish community. Not only being at a Gentile's home, but certainly eating with him. So there we have, as we start off the text, now verses four through 17 is where Peter really explains himself, if you would, or defends himself. And I'm not gonna reteach this because we already taught it verbatim. But I, I want us to pick out some things that at least get a general flow of his argument. First thing is make no mistake here. Peter is repeating the vision that he got in Acts 10. He is repeating it verbatimly. And I don't know of another place in scripture, I could be wrong on this, that goes back to back, chapter to chapter, that repeats itself. And anytime we know where God says something is important, it, it, he repeats himself. It's one of the great tools that you use to study the Bible. And I'll tell you, this is of immense importance. It is repeated back to back, the entire thing, two chapters, because Peter is explaining an event that would completely change forever the direction of biblical covenant history. It's a big deal. And we're going to see in verses 19 through 26, we're going to see all of that in the next text and the rest of Acts. Peter's flow of argument is simply this, verse 5 and 6, I didn't make this up in some wild hair chasing moment. 
I was engaged with God through prayer. Guys, don't blame me. It is God who initiated this vision. Verses seven and nine, Peter's tell them, look, he's got an audience now. Remember who his audience is? Bunch of long beard, Jewish, tight, rigid folk, believers, but that's their background. So Peter tells him in verse seven and nine, I had a chit chat with God who told me to rise, kill, and eat all the animals. And I want to tell you, that's the greatest proof text for hunting. <laughs> Amen, brother. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Somebody say, obey the word of God. I repeat that verse every morning in spring when I turn camp. Rise, rise, Jeff, kill the gobbler and eat him and worship to your great God. Come on. Man, I need to preach on that one day. Just preach. He says that to his tight, rigid audience, and they all gasp. Oh, my. They're thinking. There is no way God who gave us the law on Mount Sinai said this. And I love Peter's honesty in his next phrase, but it's also hilarious. Peter tells them that he pushed back on God. I mean, he admitted that. He said to God, no way, God, I won't do that. And I have never done that. The audience responds to him, good, brother. Way to talk back to God and tell him what is true and right and good. <laughs> I mean, that's the conversation going on. Then Peter says, I got a second whack on the head. God talked to me again. What's clean is clean. If I say it's clean. Verse 10 tells us this happened three times, but it's not the third time. If we go back to Acts 10, it's actually the fourth whack on the head about the very same thing. If you need multiple whacks, you're not alone. Verse 12 through 14, the Holy Spirit said, Go to the Gentile house with no distinction. And Peter, at that point, he says, he finds out that at the same time God is dealing with him, he's also working to prepare the Gentile hearts through an angel. So it's this double working of God, which is often what he's doing when we're trying to share the gospel with someone. Don't miss that. We'll come back to it. The angel told the Gentiles, go and fetch Peter. It was a country angel. Y'all didn't get that. Because he said, it is Peter that has a salvation message for you. In verses 15 through 17, before Peter could even finish his gospel presentation, it says the Holy Spirit came with great power. Just as he did in the book of Acts, Acts 2, in the upper room at Pentecost, and he saved them, and now what we have right before us is what theologians call the Gentile Pentecost. Peter's grand conclusion, if God gave them the Holy Spirit, the same as he did for us in Acts 2, who am I to say no for this? At the end of the day, folks, no matter who you are, Peter or anyone, it takes an enormous amount of courage to say this is who God is, this is how God works, and to say that to an audience that thinks you have lost your mind. 
You're talking about something relevant for Christ's followers today in our culture? You're talking about a group of folks, Christ followers in our world, that need models, what it looks like to forsake all so that Christ may be supreme? There you have a great example of that. Here's what's gorgeous, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Tells us they fell silent. All the theological squabbling stopped as they went from protest to praise. Now I want you to note here. There is an emphasis clearly in this text on the sovereignty of God because it was God who did this. He was the ones who opened the eyes and gave them repentance that leads to life. God had acted on the behalf of the Gentiles and brought them full salvation just as he did a Jew. That gospel that was promised, that would be and was commanded to go from Judea to Samaria and then to the world is happening right before our very eyes. And the world literally would not be the same, including you and I being here. So what happens after these first introductory 18 verses is Luke now makes a few comments as we get into the actual founding and plant of the first Gentile church. So let's read that text. All right, look with me. Verse 20, 19 through 26. Paul transitions here. He says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church back in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, Barnabas was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for who? Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So here's the deal. In light of Stephen's speech in Acts 7, where he laid everything out about the Jewish history and the Messiah, he laid it all out. Jews at this point still thought that Jerusalem, in a sense, was the geological center of the church. Jerusalem, in their mind, was the mother church. But we're going to see here, and we just saw reading that, then verses 19 through 26, that that bubble or that thinking, that stinging thinking, was about to burst as the first Gentile church has been founded. Luke, our author, what he does in verse 19. Notice he takes us back to Acts 8, 1 through 4. He takes us back where this narrative is told of the Jews being persecuted by Saul. 
And because of that, what did they do? They didn't stay around Jerusalem. They're being persecuted. Paul's leading the persecution. So they flee or scatter to get away from being persecuted. So in between Acts 8 and Acts 11, 19, what Luke does, he takes a detour, okay? And he shows us Acts 10 and 11 because Acts 10 and 11 is the setup for what's about to happen here in Acts 11, 9 through 19 through 26. That makes sense? So that's where we are in the narrative. When Stephen was getting stoned to death, remember Paul was applauding and that sparked a persecution to Christians. And there were lots of these folks. I don't know how many, but I know many Matter of fact, Peter and James start both of their New Testament letters to the dispersed people or the people that had been scattered. That's how many they were. And that can feel discouraging. Christians being persecuted, having to leave their homes and flee to other countries. But I think what God's word tells us, don't be discouraged. <laughs> This is God's missionary plan for his church. He ordained it, he allowed it, and he will now execute it. He will now make it happen because he promised. Yes, God used bad, I think it's already been mentioned this morning, for our good and his glory. It is something, if you want to know what he always does, that's what he does for his people. The plan was this. As the people of God scatter, so will the word of God scatter. Verse 19 says, those who were scattered were only sharing Christ with Jews. And God, in some sense, is saying, no, no, no. I'm going to send the gospel to those who love bacon. <laughs> That's us. Verse 20, this is a world-shaking, transforming event. Someone said it's a 10.0 on a missionary Richter scale. And here's, did you notice how it sort of comes about, how it materializes? It comes about through unnamed and unknown people. <laughs> they don't even name them with a burden to preach Jesus to the Gentiles. And so they take off to Antioch. Now I want you to know going to Antioch is like you and I leaving Murfreesboro to go live in San Francisco. I'm not sure that's your top option if you're moving. Somebody say amen, right? It's just reality. Antioch was Paganville when historians said it was raw, moral pagans. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Approximate population was 500,000. They had this mentality, live and let live. Anything goes as long as it makes you happy. Sound relevant to our culture? Yes. Verse 21 says the hand of the Lord was in them. Anytime you see that phrase, it's just speaking about God's power. And a great number trusted Christ. And folks, I think this is amazing. I think the scriptures push this out as amazing because none of these people that are being preached to and coming to Christ have any kind of Old Testament background. This is new ground. For the church, plain Joe Christians sharing Christ and Lord have mercy, it's working. What do you know? 
It's called, yeah, it's called normal. Verse 22, again, man, I don't know how, how they communicated, but the news got back fast, flies back to Jerusalem. And the church then dispatches Barnabas. In the weeks ahead, we're going to learn a lot about Barnabas. He's a Jew from Cyprus, a Hellenistic Jew. F.F. Bruce, the great scholar, says this about Barnabas. Barnabas was to do in Antioch what Peter and John did in Samaria. A better man could not have been chosen for this delicate work. The first Gentile church here in Antioch was not tight with its religious garb like back in Jerusalem. Same message, different environment. Someone said, and I thought probably it's true, it was much more like the Jesus movement in the 60s where folks wore shorts, had long hair, and T-shirts with Jesus rules on them, right? Gives us a picture. So what happens, verse 23, Barnabas, is, he arrives and he rejoices over the grace of God. And Barnabas' nickname, and he was known as Mr. Encouragement. So what does he do? He does what he does best. He encourages them for faithfulness, a long obedience in the same direction. But at the same time, it's not about Barnabas. And he realizes these massive brand new baby Christians need someone else with different gifts, different temperament, and different strengths. And he knows exactly who to get. So he goes to Tarsus, 100 miles away, not a small thing by foot, and he gets... Saul of Tarsus. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but God had told Saul, you will preach the gospel to Gentiles. You'll preach the gospel to kings, etc., etc." Paul's been on the sideline now. Most scholars don't know exactly how long, but for years. And I'm sure Paul and his humanists thinking, when am I going to get my chance to do what God has ordained me to do? Knock on the door. He opens it. It's his old friend Barnabas. And Barnabas says, it's time. And Paul says, let's roll. And the mission is on from here. I do want us to notice the providence of God. The very one who initiated this persecution, Saul, that ultimately caused the scattering and persecution of Christians that resulted in the preaching of the gospel in Antioch, is the same one who is going to teach these new disciples. Do you ever doubt that God is gracious and merciful? Man, what a great reminder. Saul and Barnabas, different gifts, and they plant the first Gentile church of Antioch, where followers of Christ were first called Christians. Now, I don't want to spend time here, but if you notice anything, they're a team. And they have different gifts, different temperaments, different strengths. And yes, Monty is way more like the Apostle Paul than me. I'm way more like Peter, probably. But both are needed. Both are together. Both are about the mission. I love that picture. So... We have the showdown in Jerusalem, from praise to protest. We have the planning of the first church. What is the therefore for us? What wax on the head do you and I need? Let me attempt to give us three this morning that have potential, but the Lord may give you certainly more. The first one is let the nations be glad. 
As we apply this text, we need to understand that God's sovereign purpose was to include saved folks from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue for his glory. From Genesis 12, the seed of Abraham was ultimately God's promised redeemer, redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now you add to that the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where it says that you purchase for God with your blood souls from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And then you look at Acts eleven eighteen, where the Greek word for Gentiles is often translated nations. And yes, the Jews did not fully understand this at the time, but later in Ephesians, an epistle, the apostle Paul sort of unpacks this in Ephesians chapter two and three. And it's there he calls this the mystery of Christ, where Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the family through the gospel. 2,000 years before this, Israel had been God's chosen people and now all the nations right here where we stand in biblical history are on equal standing through the cross. That's good news. Therefore, I think our takeaway is simple but profound. If we are not in some way involved in getting the gospel to the nations, whether it's across the street or around the world, we are not following God's purpose and plan for our lives. Apathy to that mission, biblically, is inexcusable. Go, give, and pray. So, let the nations be glad. Also, I think of there for us, a whack upside the head certainly has got to be to kill our stinking thinking. Yeah, I mentioned all of us bring this stinking thinking into our Christian journeys. And Peter's critics were certainly bringing their own stinking thinking, were they not? In some ways, this stinking thinking should relate to us. We should feel it. We should get it. We should see it. That culture, traditions, ethnicities become more important than God's truth in our culture. Honestly, these Jewish Christians were more concerned that Peter violated some kosher laws than about the Gentiles being saved. But before we sort of remove that splinter from their eye, let's take attempt to move the beam from our eye. Bottom line is, if any, and this is where it takes discernment and maturity, if any of our cultural baggage is getting in the way of our excitement and commitment to reaching people that are different than us, we gotta drop that baggage. There's nowhere in scriptures where we are told to reach, quote unquote, our kind of people. <laughs> there is no such thing. Scripture has two big categories, saved and unsaved, and everything else is prejudice. And I'll tell you, the Lord Jesus Christ should be the safest place in the world for diverse people in every kind of diversity known to man. Height, weight, hair color, skin color, economics, hobbies, athleticism, non-nerds. I mean... There's no distinction here. There's no nerds at Fellowship Bible Church. I want you to know that. 
because we're to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is the gospel. John Stott, I love what he said, Dr. John Stott. He says, tragic as it is, the church has never learned irrevocably the truth of its own unity or the equality of its members in Christ. The same ugly sin of discrimination has kept reappearing in the church in the form of racism, color prejudice, in the form of nationalism, my country is best, in the form of tribalism in Africa, caste system in India, social and cultural snobbery. He says all such behavior is both an obscenity, offensive to human dignity, and blasphemy because it's offensive to God, because it is him who accepts all who repent and believe the gospel. Like in Acts 10, 34, you and I have to learn that God does not show favoritism. And if you want to know one foundational reason of many that we do community groups the way we do, that we don't put you in groups based on your age or your hobbies or whatever else that may connect you. No, we throw everybody in a group connected around one thing, the gospel of the Lord. And this is why. I was so encouraged this week. You may not know Red Stedman, Ray Stedman, pastor for 50 years at a Bible church down in Pensacola, Florida. An absolute biblical stud. And I love this. I love this little truth I read. In his church in the 60s and 70s, it said, little old grandma sitting next to African Americans and hippies with long hair worshiping together. I thought that is the church. Lastly, therefore, the Lord adds to the Lord. <laughs> the Lord adds to the Lord. And look, what I'm about to say, we've already said multiple times from this pulpit. Monty said it, I've said it. You've already read about it in one of the chapters of the book, Jesus Giving Jesus Away. You heard John Hopper stand here. But one of the things John Hopper said was don't be afraid to repeat yourself, pastors. I said, man, I can do that. So I'm going to nag and bang this truth home. We need it. The Lord asked of the Lord. We have seen that while God was preparing Cornelius for the arrival of Peter, he was also preparing Peter to go to the home of a Gentile. We have seen in our text where God is preparing for the Jerusalem church to embrace Gentile believers. And at the same time, he was beginning to evangelize Gentiles in Antioch. We have seen where it is God and God alone who grants repentance that leads to eternal life. And we know it is Jesus who said, unless you repent, you will all perish. Repentance is a gift from God. As Jeremiah the prophet says in Jeremiah 31, 18, turn thou me and I shall be turned. And the reason is there's no way that man can repent on his own. It is a impossibility for man to turn from his sin and submit to God on his own. Paul puts it like this in 2 Timothy 2 as he speaks to Timothy. He says, I hope that God may perhaps grant them, non-Christians, repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. 
So I say to us, it is the Lord who asks to the Lord, our job, preach the gospel. It's not on you. It has nothing to do with us. If your country say it ain't about me, and it's God's job to save folks. Again, John Stott says, it is the Lord that asks to the Lord, so that he is both subject and object, source and goal of evangelism. I want to encourage you to drill that truth down in your soul, and if you do, your mouth will, will speak about the beauty of Christ way more often. It ain't about you. Take a minute this morning to ask yourself the question, what whack do I need upside the head? There's a lot of options. Take your minute and ask the Lord to reveal that to you. morning if you would Lord Jesus we are grateful that because we are your people you whack upside the head whack us upside the head the Bible calls it spiritual or calls it discipline from a loving perfect good God it is always for our good and for your glory Yes, your children need discipline, just like our children need discipline. It's good for us. It is perfect. You're not an imperfect father, but an absolute perfect one. And so we want to thank you for that. We want to be more open to your wax upside the head that calls generational, genuine life change for us and our those we love around us to make us more obedient, to see you clear in who you are, to see your holiness and your righteousness in contrast to how different you are from us. It helps us submit to you. So I pray you do a great work. Lord, I pray you'd never let us not be stunned by these words in 1118. And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Every person in here that is not a Jew was granted by a great gift repentance that led us to place our trust in you. May you make us as the 
early church father said, the reformer said, always changing, always repenting. May that mark us here at Fellowship and in your church worldwide. And we love you. And everyone said, amen. If you're